Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. Hi there, this is Graham Rowett, and I hope you're feeling wicked. Welcome to the Wicked Library. Warning, the Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Hello. And welcome to Season 11, Episode Number 8 of The Wicked Library. I hope you've been enjoying the season so far and that you've enjoyed our guest hosts. We have many more guest hosts scheduled, including TWL alum authors Jessica McHugh and Meg Haftall, as well as some of our most popular voice actors and even Sadie Hartman, a.k.a. Mother Horror, and Mitch Gerards, illustrator extraordinaire and multiple Eisner Award-winning artist of Mr. Miracle, Batman, and Strange Adventures from DC Comics. The last year has been a bit of a challenge for me, folks. Not only have I been affected by the same big world things as the rest of you, but I had three unplanned surgeries last year, and I've been struggling with health issues and my depression. With all of this in mind, and the desire to keep Victoria's Lift and the Wicked Library going strong, I recently brought on board the very talented Meg Williams as my new co-producer for both shows, as well as the planned Cartwright and Enfield Detective Agency, starring Frank Enfield of The Private Collector. Meg will be stepping in to oversee production schedules, assist with communications with our artists, authors, composer, voice actors, and guest hosts, and, of course, keep your need, dear listeners, for more dark tales satisfied. Now, today's episode was written for us by an author new to the Wicked Library, but certainly not new to well-written horror fiction, A.P. Sessler. Thank you most sincerely to those of you supporting the show on Patreon. You truly make this show possible. And it's because of your support that I can afford to bring Meg into the fold and focus on my health and other personal matters. And also, it's your support that allows us to continue to make sure those who contribute to the show don't work for free. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and we really do rely on this support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing that you're a part of making this show possible, you also get fun rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Today's story is told by Graham Rowett, accompanied by a custom score by Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Michelangelo said, The sculpture is already complete within the block before I start my work. It is already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. 
In today's dark tale, we examine the sculptor's drive to chisel away that which hides the truth within the block, in Faces of Mars. I lie in bed, staring at the rising and falling contour that marks the summit of my wife's bare back. It's like the frame of a fine instrument. Given the rarest wood and the sharpest tools, Stradivarius himself could not build one finer. I have been blessed with the good fortune to play this instrument for four years now, and yet I am still but an apprentice, a rank amateur, the absolute mockery of a lover. But still, she humors me allows me to glide the bow across her neck, to pluck her strings with fumbling fingers, both of which produce a pleasing sound. Scattered like stars across her near-perfect skin are a series of tiny moles, the kind I suppose a model would call a beauty mark. I call it her constellation, Cassiopeia to be precise, though a working familiarity with several astrological bodies would prove it resembles none in particular. I just like the name, so that's what I call it. She jokes it's the only name other than hers I can ever call out during sex without serious repercussions. A less popular nickname she heard as a child was Holy Moly. It's a phrase I've been told never to use in her presence, even in jest. Apparently, some boys at the pool teased her so much she hasn't worn a two-piece since. Oh, but I can guarantee you every one of those boys wishes they could see that bear back now. Holy moly is right. There's only one thing wrong with this picture. Laura's back isn't turned to me because she prefers to sleep on her left. We had the mother of all fights today, all over what she deemed my weird obsession. She doesn't understand. She couldn't. I roll in the opposite direction to face the window and look into the night sky, where the real stars blaze and twinkle unashamedly in full view, and I think of all that's transpired in these last couple months. It's hard to believe it all began with a single click. The link to the article proclaimed, Exciting new photos from Ingenuity. By exciting, the writer mostly meant more run-of-the-mill rocks like those found right here on planet Earth. But the series that caught my eye, and I imagine millions of others, was that of the legendary Face of Mars. I know all about the optical illusion light and shadow can create. As a sculptor, positive and negative are as plain a language to me as English, but it doesn't take an artist to see faces where they don't belong. It certainly wasn't the first time I'd seen the thing, but this time, and in a new light, I saw something I'd never seen before. At the moment it happened, I couldn't decide if my monitor was acting up 
or if my eyes were weary from staring. But the mouth moved. Not just twitch like a retinal vibration, but actually move and change shape. Like a fool, I searched for the play button, suddenly assuming I'd been watching a video, only there was none. I right-clicked on the image and chose Save As, and the JPEG went into whatever folder I'd used last. With a few more clicks, I found the folder and opened the still image, and God is my witness. The mouth was still moving. It wasn't a GIF. I right-clicked again to make sure. JPEG. The longer I looked at it, the more I realized it wasn't repeating either. There were uneven pauses between movements and each series was as random in appearance as it was in length. Ow! There was a sharp, stabbing pain in my left ear, like pressing a Q-tip too far and piercing the eardrum. I massaged my ear a moment, but it offered no relief. A nagging tickle formed in the back of my throat. I coughed to clear the passage of suspect phlegm, but nothing broke loose. Then something entered my ear canal, like peroxide, but without the wet sensation. I squinted one eye and tilted my head left, as if to drain the phantom liquid, but it didn't help. I shook my head in vain, hoping to fling the amorphous invader out. Then came the sound, almost like the bubbling of the aforementioned antiseptic, but, to be more precise, a voice. My speakers were off. I shouldn't have heard what I did. Find us. See us. Free us. If I were a religious student, I might mistake the phrases with their repeated suffixes for Latin, but it was distinct and clear. I was to find them, to see them, and to free them, and I immediately knew who they were. The Martians. What was not so clear were where they were, what they looked like, and how to free them. But that, too, would become clear. Laura had left a grocery list on the kitchen table for me, so while she sat on her laptop in our cozy living room, holding virtual class for her second-grade students, I was stuck in traffic. It wasn't rush hour, nor were there any big entertainment events on the local calendar, quick search on my phone found that a tanker truck had sprung a nasty leak and covered half the highway. Unfortunately, I was at the point of no return, no room to turn around and nowhere near an exit route. I would have to wait this one out. In a half hour, I'd made it far enough to see a number of police and emergency vehicles. Officers acted as traffic guards while suited hazmat workers surveyed the mess. In another ten minutes, I came to a standstill right at the scene. I can't explain the smell. It wasn't gasoline or ammonia, but it sure had a way of waking up the olfactory senses. One of the suited workers stooped over, staring at the oily spill. I thought nothing of it until their co-worker waved a hand in front of their face. The stooped worker shook their head as if coming from a daze and faced the other one. Though the words were muffled, I believe they said, Don't you see it? The other one shrugged. It hadn't dawned on me until then that I should probably roll up my window if even the experts weren't willing to risk exposure. I should have known better. Breathing anything wasn't safe these days. I pressed the up button on my door when I heard a whistle, 
only to find a cop waving me to get moving. As the accident scene grew smaller in my rear view, I wondered what noxious chemical had been spilled, and worse, what I'd been breathing. I'm not always the sharpest tool in the shed. Having wasted a good hour in traffic, and knowing I might face the same on my return voyage, I decided to forego the bigger chain store for the mom-and-pop market. Within ten minutes, I'd filled my cart with the bare necessities and made my way to the checkout line, where I glanced at tabloids while waiting. I don't know when the bigger chain stores stopped carrying tabloids. Maybe they're too lowbrow for a business that caters to those who shop in nothing but underwear during the graveyard shift. Personally, I've always found them entertaining. You don't glance at a newspaper tabloid without a certain perverse smile or distaste. You either secretly love their attention-grabbing images and well-worded headlines, or you absolutely despise them. The one that grabbed my attention was, Woman Sees Jesus in Tree Stump. I reached for the tabloid. Excuse me, said the masked cashier, diverting said attention. Please don't handle the merchandise unless you intend to buy. Pandemic rules. I didn't bother mentioning how many fruit and vegetables I'd sifted through before finding suitable choices. I nearly passed up the tabloid when the face on the tree stump called to me. Find us, I heard the image say. Jesus Christ! Literally. I took the tabloid and placed it on the counter, and within minutes I was in my truck, turning the pages to find the article. Betty L. Fletcher, 44, of Berwick, Pennsylvania, claims the recently cut tree in her backyard bears the face of Jesus. And from the above photos, we think you'll agree the second coming is nigh. I stared at the photo. The swirling rings and knots in the stump sure enough resembled a bearded face. Why it had to belong to Jesus, I didn't know, other than simple-minded religious people look for signs in everything. Yet here I was staring at the face as if it was a sign from the gods themselves. Find us. I glanced back at the first paragraph of the story. Betty. Berwick, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania? That was nearly a full day's trip. Find us. How would I explain this to Laura? Find us. It's not like I had the disposable income during this time of lean. Find us. All right already, I'll find you, I shouted at the image. I heard a car door open. I glanced over to see a woman staring at me with the oddest expression. She nudged the little girl with her to get into the back seat, never once taking her eyes off of me. All right, I whispered. I'll find you. Twenty, thirty years ago, contacting someone bordering on celebrity practically involved getting a court order. With the advent of social media and the surrender of anonymity, it took less than an hour to locate and contact Betty L. Fletcher. It took a bit of finagling, but she agreed to sell me the stump if I was willing to come pick it up. I opened the bidding with an offer of $150, but since it was a religious artifact, she argued, she wouldn't think of letting it go for less than $500. Her husband, the more pragmatic of the two, told her not to push her luck, so she sold it to me for $300. I insisted she take half up front through PayPal to hold it for me, to which she agreed. I convinced Laura I needed the stump for my next piece, and that its viral status would guarantee a sale. 
I may have told her I already had a potential buyer. That wasn't true. I was barely out of the blocks when I found myself stuck in a traffic jam yet again. Oddly enough, it was the same stretch of highway as before. Construction work this time. I'd rolled my window up a mile back because of the overpowering odor of asphalt. Somebody was paving the road, but the timing seemed incredibly odd. When I neared the scene, I saw a large pothole in the street, and I swear it was the exact same spot as the chemical spill a couple days before. Streaks of red and green ran from the hole to the curb, though I recalled the substance being clear in color. Maybe it changed colors when it dried, or there was some chemical reaction. Either way, it was incredibly odd, said the guy hearing talking pictures on his way to buy a stump because a voice told him to. Almost a thousand miles, a half dozen rest stops and snack breaks later, I was in the thick of Pennsylvania. When I arrived at 17 Kildurkin Road, I was greeted by a trio of bird dogs, eager to meet anyone who might have food, as they looked near starvation. I felt a measure of guilt for having nothing to offer more than guarded pats on the head or rump, but the gesture became more welcomed as they escorted me up the dirt drive to the settler-style cabin. The door swung open and the man of the house stepped out. You that fellow that called about the stump? I am. I said, You got the money? He asked, I do. Then right this way. He nodded and led me to the back of the house, where the stump sat wrapped in chains, still secured to the truck that had freed it from its earthen prison. I heard the voice, even before I saw the face. Free me. I massaged my throbbing temple, then reached for my wallet to pay the man. The drive home was even more intense. Now I had not only my purpose, but the one who gave it nearly within arm's reach. I held my peace for some time, awaiting any effort on its part to communicate. Either my anxiety made me deaf to its voice, or it wasn't in the mood. There was also the distinct chance I was losing my mind. I'll be out in the shed working, I told Laura. I wasn't halfway to the door when Leo stood at attention from what looked like a dead sleep. But that was Leo for you. He was only waiting for the word. Normally I wouldn't have been so apprehensive about letting him come, but there was nothing normal about the job I was about to undertake. I did my best to ignore him and open the door when Laura had to egg him on. You going to work with Daddy? Huh? That sent his tail to wagging. I was about to protest, but she interrupted. Go with Daddy. I inhaled the words back in before they could leave my mouth. All right, come on, I said and nodded, as if I had to, and he came trotting over. Leo was one of those rare dogs that wasn't bothered by thunder, fireworks, or gunshots, and living just outside the city, we weren't strangers to any of the above. He could hear me hammer all day and not bat an eye or turn an ear. The stump sat upon my work table, and Leo lay in his favorite lazing spot. I looked at the face outlined in the grain. So now what? Leo raised his head. Not you, boy. He looked a minute, those beautifully curious, dark eyes reflecting the sunlit windows of the shed like diamonds. I looked away, and I'm fairly sure he did the same. My attention returned to the stump. 
I don't know what I was waiting for. The thing had already spoken to me and told me what it wanted. I was just so damn afraid of following through with this vision. Or delusion. I formed the image in my mind. A bust of Jesus, or the assumed identity thereof. Begin with the nose, as it's the topmost extruded part. All else would be but mountains and valleys compared to this Everest-esque pinnacle of features. I placed the chisel just beneath the nose, the part called the Columella. Columella. How would that be for a constellation name? I struck. The dark crack was a quarter inch deep. A moment later, I swore I heard a faint whistle, the kind you hear squeezing through the crack of a window or door. I leaned closer and turned my ear to confirm my suspicion. It was weak, but not so much I didn't feel the kiss of escaping air against my cheek. I straightened to stare into the narrow void I had created. The thin line spat in my face. My eyes closed involuntarily, then opened to see the line fill with red liquid, and when it had reached the ledge of its hole, it formed a bubble that swelled to the point of bursting, again spattering on my face. I quickly brushed the substance away with my arm, for fear it might be some type of acid or urushiol. I looked at bloody-nosed Jesus. He didn't seem phased one bit. I glanced over to the only other occupant of the shed. One eye was open and watching, then slowly closed that he might continue chasing sleep. That dog could sleep through a tornado. The tip of my chisel followed the curve where it met Jesus' nostril, and I struck a second time. Again, the crack filled with red. I instantly imagined a vivisected grub worm, the innocent victim of my haphazard stroke. While I was disheartened and could have been deterred by such guilt, I continued to trace the shape of the nose. I struck the chisel again, and the wood split from the center of the stump to the side and down. Shit, I didn't strike that hard. Leo's head raised, both eyes open. Jesus, I complained, then looked into the face of the docile messiah. No offense. I heard a dripping sound. I hadn't noticed the red liquid was still issuing forth from the crack, now paired with one green. It had run across the table and pooled on the floor. That's when Leo sat up and decided to join me at the table. He stooped low to smell the stuff. No, don't, I said, but Leo began lapping it up. Stop, Leo. You don't know what that is. Of course, neither did I. He glanced at me with guilty eyes then continued drinking the stuff. I placed the tools on the table and tried to pull him away, but he was too determined to finish. I looked around the shed for a mop, as if it wasn't my shed and I didn't know where every single tool was, a non-existent mop being one of them. I could have used the broom, but that would only spread the mess across my floor. Go ahead and enjoy. Hope it doesn't make you sick. I looked back at the mess I'd created sitting on my table. How was I supposed to carve the face out of the stump? It was ruined. I'd already failed at the mission I'd been called to. Free me, a voice said, and at once Leo went to barking. Did you hear that? I asked as if Leo could answer, which ironically made infinitely more sense than a talking photograph or stump. 
Leo moved back a few paces from the puddle he'd been working on, but kept barking. What is it? I asked. Following his gaze, mine fell to the half-finished puddle. The pool of colored fluids on the floor had fallen, or perhaps spread from some sentient locomotion, into tiny islets that mirrored the face present in the grain of the stump. The negative space approximating its mouth moved. Free me. I was frozen. Breathless. No. The face insisted, without any change in intonation that would connote demand. Despite the violent trembling that assumed control of my members, I managed to take hold of the tools. I went to finish tracing the shape of the nose, yet a sudden realization came upon me. I wasn't meant to sculpt some image of a supposed savior. I placed the chisel into the split that marred the image of God and struck. The resulting crack formed a pie-slice-shaped chunk of wood, which was just as quickly pushed out of the stump by what looked like an articulate vein, half as long as I was tall. I leaped out of its path as it writhed and lashed. I thought to do me harm, but the vocalization that followed could best be described as ecstatic release. I approached, unafraid of the alien appendage, which haphazardly brushed me in its spasmodic undulations. When it touched me, something like feathers unfolded across its length. If its noises were any indicator, each that made contact seemed to please the thing. A purring sound, but more vocal in nature, like the gentle, hypnotic music of my Laura's moans. I was emboldened by this unearthly voice, empowered to explore further. I planted the chisel's edge deeper into the narrow crevice and drove it deeper still with the pounding of my hammer. A chunk of wood the length of my forearm split off, and in the opening I'd created I saw wet, glistening flesh, some parts green, others red, like an amalgam of what looked to be strange alien vulvas joined together dripping their vulgar juices through the fresh fissure, further darkening the concrete floor of my workshop. In my periphery, I watched Leo charge. He jumped and chomped, trying to take hold of the elusive limb. My God, I will never forget how quickly and effortlessly it penetrated Leo's hide like a hypodermic, and no matter how strongly Leo initially resisted, it would not be separated from him. If I'd been in my right state of mind, I would have driven the chisel through that thing's heart, but I was as paralyzed as Leo. It drained him, sucked him dry. In retrospect, I'm grateful it was so quick. Leo didn't suffer. Long. He crumpled like a juice box, like a sheet of paper balled in someone's hand. When the whole sickening ordeal was done which took nearly a minute, the proboscis withdrew, and the rest of the creature, somewhere between the size of a beach ball and a basketball, ascended over the edge of the stump and plopped onto the table with a splat. You killed my dog, I said. The moment the words escaped my lips, the proboscis struck my forehead and its feathers lay flat. My God, it's going to suck me dry, was all I could think as I waited for my bones and tissues to turn to soup and leave my body. 
there was a pop as it separated from my head and fell limp over the table so that it nearly reached the floor. Blood dribbled out from its end, and I confess I wished it was Leo's and not my own. The creature was still. As quickly as I could, I grabbed the chisel and hammer when the proboscis struck me again. I dropped the tools with hands raised in surrender. I'm sorry, I don't know what I was thinking, I said to quell its wrath. Surely a creature that communicated through images and inanimate objects possessed telepathic skills. Can you hear me? I asked. I hear you, said the voice, whether you speak or not. I looked to the puddle on the floor to see if the voice emanated from it, but it was nothing more than streaks beginning or terminating in paw prints. Poor Leo. You call eyes the window to the soul. We call faces the door by which to enter your world, said the Martian. I examined the creature as it spoke. Among all the many slits and apertures that could be called orifices, none moved in sync with the vocalizations. As far as I can see, you don't have a face. Neither does our world. But the evolution of consciousness on your world developed to see faces in the abstract, acts as a bridge. Men devised images out of wood and stone and metal to worship, to lead them. They called unto us, and for this reason we have come. You're talking about idols? Gods, the voice said with a finality, an implication I wished I hadn't comprehended. For if it was a god... Then I was a prophet. I stared at the quivering, pulsating thing before me, and though few would mistake it for a god, I had no doubt it possessed the power to be one. A knock came at the door. The Martian's proboscis spun toward the entrance, as if homing in on a target. It could only be Laura. Thank God I had locked the door. I stepped between it and the Martian. No, I said. You leave her alone. The proboscis swayed toward me, my body tensed. As if I were any threat, I pointed at the creature and backed toward the entrance. The doorknob shook. Laura? I called. The door's locked, she said. Just a minute. I grabbed the doorknob tight as I unlocked it so Laura couldn't wrestle the door open, which was the first thing she tried to do. I squeezed through the narrow crack and pulled the door shut behind me. Hey, babe, sup? She looked past me, as if she could see through the door. I heard Leo barking. Is he in there? He's not with you? I immediately realized how bad a liar I was. Of course not, Goofy. He left with you. Oh, yeah. All I could think of was her squeezing past me to get inside, and that thing killing her. I gripped the knob tighter, should the thing decide it wanted out. He barked to go out, so I let him. Huh, okay, she said, unconvinced, as she still looked right through me. Anyway, gotta get back to work now. Okay. So I'll see you in a little while. I opened the door enough to back into, and she stayed glued to the spot, though she stood on her toes to see over my shoulder. Bye now. I pulled the door shut and locked it again. Something brushed my shoulder 
and when I glanced, I saw the proboscis dangling over my chest. Fuck! I shouted. What's wrong? Laura called through the door. I slowly, carefully brushed the thing away. Nothing! I said loudly. Stepped on a nail! Maybe I wasn't such a bad liar after all. Are you okay? Jesus, woman, go away. I'm all right. Didn't go through my shoe. Oh, good. I turned to face the Martian. It crept backwards, that is, if any part of it could be called its front. I approached the table where Leo's corpse lay. Poor boy. I stooped over to examine the awful mess. What was I going to do with it? How could I hide this from Laura? She was going to find out. I stood up. Laura's face was pressed against the window, her hand over her eyes to see through the glare. God damn it, Laura! My heart was about to leap out of my chest. She gave me an embarrassed shrug. I'm trying to work! I shouted. She mouthed the sarcastic, sorry, and disappeared from view. Jesus, there's no way I could keep this thing away from her. The proboscis fell over my shoulder again. I took a deep breath. I was quickly becoming scare-proof. What? I asked the Martian sharply. The proboscis pointed toward the door. Great. Now it thinks it's a dog, too. Not right now. We have to wait. The proboscis went rigid, as if insisting. I said not now! I peered through the window, waiting for Laura to pop up out of nowhere. I'll come back tonight. I was true to my word. Knowing Leo wasn't coming back, and in an effort to appease Laura's anxiety, I told her I would look for Leo, that maybe he'd taken off after a squirrel or cat and gotten himself lost. I made sure to carry my buck knife with me, just in case I and the Martian came to some disagreement. When I got to the shed, I found the door open and a trail of slime over the threshold. The Martian was gone and obviously had no trouble figuring out doors. Dear God, where had it gone? I could only hope it wasn't the house, but having seen no signs of it for hours, I had to assume it wasn't exactly an indoor creature. I used the cover of night and my well-crafted rescue story to dispose of Leo's remains, which to my disgust were so drained of their interior contents, I fit them in a small duffel bag which gave Laura no cause for alarm when she saw me carry it to the truck. I drove down the road a ways, past the creek where fishermen and illegal deer hunters were carelessly prone to discard their plundered carcasses. I could just imagine someone discovering Leo's leftovers. I pulled onto the grassy shoulder that ran parallel to the forest, and with my funerary duffel over my shoulder, a flashlight and shovel, I made my way into the cemeterian woods in search of a proper gravesite. A clearing wouldn't suffice. It'd be too easy for some wilder animal to unearth. I needed enough room to dig, but too little room to lie. I found such a location within ten minutes, and considering there wasn't much to bury, I didn't dig too deep. A couple feet at best. I unzipped the duffel and overturned it, saddened as the blob of flesh that was my pet plopped into the hole. It reminded me of the thing I had freed, and which had taken Leo from me. 
You were a good boy, Leo. I'm sorry that thing killed you. I would have stopped it if I could, just like you tried to stop it. I don't know what I've unleashed into this world. In the end, maybe it's better you died as quickly as you did. Even when I said those words, it felt foreboding. It was the one part of Leo's eulogy I wish I had left out. I had to get the idea out of my head. I'll miss you, buddy. What is it about vocalizing our loss that makes us break down so easily? The pain is there all along, regardless. But soon as you open your mouth, grief leaps like a wolf, ready to fill it with sobs and your eyes with tears. Maybe it's like the Martian, trapped inside, patiently waiting for liberation. I gave the Martian no further thought as I filled Leo's grave, wondering instead what I would tell Laura. It was on my way out of the woods that my thoughts would return to the Martian, as the beam of my flashlight fell upon a peculiar patch of moss on the face of a tree. I stopped in my tracks, momentarily frozen in its gaze. No, I said and passed it. Mark, said a voice. I spun around. Who's there? I asked, but I already knew. I returned to the tree and shone my light upon the blue-green moss. Free me, it said. What will you do if I don't? You will free us, it insisted. I will? You have been chosen. Many see us. Few can hear us. There are others? They are busy at work. I thought of the other Martian. Where'd your friend get off to? There was no answer. Where will you go when I free you? I said. Still no answer. Fine. Then stay in your tree, I said, and took a single step when such a great numbness took hold of my faculties that I hit the ground, unable to do so much as stick a hand out to cushion my fall. You will free us, the voice said again, without the slightest emotion, without a hint of displeasure. This I took to mean that there was no need for the Martian to grow angry or throw tantrums to get its way, because there was no possibility of denying it. Neither did I have to assure it I would obey. With the passing of the numbness went my refusal. I simply returned to the truck, got my chainsaw, and went to work. It was unreal. Wielding a dangerous tool in the dark... The very real possibility of injury from a whirring chain of razor teeth or death from a falling tree, and yet I had not a qualm doing it. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face, and yet I blindly cut away as confidently as I would on a sunny day with clear blue skies. The tree crashed down, kicking up dirt and needles into my face. I was unmoved. I took five steps and lowered my blade until it met wood, and continued cutting. When I pulled in the driveway, the porch light came on and Laura stepped out to greet me in her robe, a look of hope in her eyes I pretended not to see. I walked to the back of the truck, lowered the tailgate, and leaped up in the bed to roll the two-foot cutout. What is that? Laura asked, and I realized she was standing not ten feet away. I found a tree in the... You were supposed to find Leo, she said incredulously. Where's Leo? I shrugged. 
I couldn't find him. She covered her mouth as tears ran down her cheeks. Why weren't you looking? I was looking. I just happened to see this tree. I thought it would make a great piece. She shook her head. I can't believe this. You were supposed to look for Leo and you were out somewhere cutting down trees? What the fuck is wrong with you? I told you I was looking in the woods. She turned to leave. Laura, I tried, but there was no use. She went inside and the porch light turned off. I could have argued with her, with the Martian, but I didn't. I rolled the log into the shed and freed the Martian and watched it slither out of the shed to who knows where. I woke up in the shed, my face in a pool of Martian slime and my own saliva. I wiped my face on my arm. It stung like mad. I remembered my fall in the woods the night before and realized I must have done a number to my face. And speaking of falls, it was a wonder I was still seated on the stool. I stood, and every shifting bone and muscle screamed. I opened the door to blinding sun and made my way to the house to survey the damage I had done. Laura was at the kitchen table, drinking coffee and reading her Kindle. When I passed the trash can, I noticed an empty bottle of wine jutting out from the top. I waited for an olive branch, most plausibly in the form of a good morning, but it wouldn't come. I had to tell her, even if it was only half the truth. I'm sorry I didn't explain last night, but I found Leo. I began, and immediately her gaze was fixed on me. No, I mean I found his... Jesus, I couldn't say it. Her eyes welled with tears, and the corners of her mouth pulled down tight. He's dead? I took a deep breath and looked off into a corner. Why didn't you bring him home? I shook my head. There wasn't... What? There wasn't that much left of him. A single cry burst from her lips. He was all broken, busted up. And this is where the truth became a lie. It must have been a semi on the highway. She opened her arms. I walked into them and held her. Take me to him, she cried. I buried him in the woods. Take me. We stood at the forest crypt I had fashioned from nature. There's no marker. She whimpered. We'd only invite some curious kid or animal to dig him up, I said. She knelt and reached between the trees to make small circles in the soil with her hand, as if stroking Leo's head. I'll miss you, Leo. I looked away, as if diverting my gaze could spare my soul the crushing grief and shame ready to strike me like a falling tree. Laura sat at the dining room table, slowly climbing a tower of bills in danger of reaching the heavens. I'd patched things up well enough, but that did nothing to fix our financial situation, which threatened to tear that patch away stitch by stitch. She laid another envelope down, just one more brick for the growing tower. I don't know how we're going to do it, she said. We'll figure it out, I said. We always do. When's the last time somebody bought a sculpture? 
There went another stitch. It won't be long. You haven't made or sold anything in a month. She was right, but I couldn't let her know. I'm just chasing my muse right now. While you're chasing your muse, the bill collectors are chasing us. You know my job alone won't do it. Not since they cut our pay for the convenience of working at home. Assholes. I deflected with an olive branch of commiseration. Yes, they are. But that's the reality. You used to bring in a thousand or two a month. And now? I ground my teeth and nodded. I stood from the table and headed for the door. I'll get to work right away. I stood in my shed, the lone human on a Martian landscape. Stumps and slices and blocks I'd spent a month collecting and cutting surrounded me like alien monoliths. These wooden wombs, these eggshells, were no longer inhabited by their spawn. I was a Martian midwife, delivering these red planet children into the world with my own hands. But as a provider, I had become a failure, having not produced a single thing worth selling, which made me a failure as an artist as well. A sculptor frees the image trapped inside a medium. So what does one do when what's trapped inside has been freed, and yet the medium resembles nothing afterward? I needed a new paradigm. After an hour pacing the floor and looking into each artifact, it came to me. The Martians were sharing space with my subjects. They were roommates, deadbeats who had moved on. In a manner of speaking, I was the leaseholder and rent was due. I'd bought the tree stump thinking I was to carve a bust of Jesus. Afterwards, I knew better, but every subsequent find also held a face within it. I would somehow force these ruinations to resemble their original impression. I would rebuild the Jerichos that came tumbling down. Since I was a Martian prophet, I would model the first one after the Messiah. But I needed to act quickly. I'd wasted so much time. I forewent the hammer and chisel for the chainsaw. I dollied the stump outside, and within an hour I stood face to face with the Savior. To conceal the gaping hole in his head where the Martian had emerged, I fashioned a crown with seven arches. Impressive, said Laura. I agreed. The piece was sold in a week. The nine hundred dollars helped out. I continued my work, both freeing the Martians and sculpting. I had found my muse again, though this time she was decidedly Roman in nature. It was near the end of the month, on our way to Allmark to stock up on a month's worth of groceries, that Laura and I were listening to the news. It was odd to hear something on the radio and witness it with your own eyes at the same time. I speak, of course, of the mounting incidents of vandalism. Holes in walls, sidewalks, streets. The city was beginning to look like Swiss cheese, whose every eye bled red and green. What the hell is going on? Laura asked, her gaze following the destruction as we passed it. It appears the vandals are not only targeting commercial infrastructure, but historic buildings and national parks as well, said the radio journalist. Natural rock formations and sacred native sites are among the unfortunate casualties of what appears to be a collective effort to deface much of our national treasures. A global summit is slated to discuss the ideology suspected behind this criminal activity and how to address it. 
the journalist finished before going to a commercial break. It's global? My God, said Laura. I said nothing, but remembered an earlier encounter with a Martian. There are others? I had asked. They are busy at work, it said. Indeed, they were busy, and so was I. After we put away the groceries, I returned to the shed to continue my mission. I was a man possessed. My muse had guided my hands these last few weeks. My output was amazing. It would only be a matter of time before my pieces found desirable homes. I was absolutely ecstatic, though some might suggest it was the open can of lacquer. I'd stained several pieces that afternoon. The windows and doors were open to vent the fumes out, so I didn't hear when Laura walked in. What is this? she said, covering her nose with her hand. I shrugged. They're what I've been working on. What are they? They're hideous. I found myself scratching the back of my neck nervously. I call them... my Martians. You're what? I went to repeat myself when she interrupted. You've spent every day driving God knows where and paying who knows what for your supplies. You get up early and come to bed late, come to find out this is what you've been working on? Where are the bears, the eagles, the cute fuzzy animals? Not everything has to be cute. And not everything has to be the same. I don't even know what I'm looking at. It's like you have some weird obsession. Yeah, it's hard work. It takes time to make art. I meant your subject matter, not your exacting work ethic, she said, throwing up her hands. We're a half month behind on the mortgage, and this is what you've been working on? Nobody's going to buy this shit. My back shot straight. Hey now, you're talking about my work here. I don't call you just sitting in front of a laptop a couple hours a day shit, do I? Do I need to remind you I'm the one keeping us afloat? Is that why we're a half month behind on the mortgage? At least I'm pulling a steady paycheck. What's this supposed to do for us? She said, shaking her head the whole time. It's disgusting. Seriously, it makes me want to throw up. Get out! I shouted. Excuse me? She said, her mouth stuck wide open. I walked to the open door and pointed. I said get out! And out she went. We haven't talked to each other since this afternoon, which is why I'm staring at her back right now. I think she wore the backless nightie just to torment me. She knows it drives me wild, and yet right now I don't feel anything close to arousal. More like shame for being such an incompetent man. If she only knew how much I truly love her. How I would give the moon and the stars if I could. The stars. I look at her back and connect the moles one to another with imaginary lines. I trace Cassiopeia's outline several times in my mind, tempted to run a finger over her back like a paintbrush, but I refrain. The more I look at it, the more I realize I was wrong. They don't look like stars at all. In fact, if you were to connect them, they would almost... No. Don't do it. I have to look away. Yet in the corner of my vision, I still see it. The line that would surely mark a brow if I just used a little... Stop it! Don't you realize what you're doing? If you look at her back one more time for one more second, you might see a face and they might try... Free me.
says the voice. My heart. Oh God, I can't breathe. No, please. Not her. Anything. Anyone but her. I don't care how mad she is at me. Not my Laura. Free me. It says again. I slowly roll out of bed so not to disturb Laura's sleep. Maybe if I just get out of the room, it'll go away. I step into the hall. Free me. The voice echoes around me, as if it's in the woodwork. I look to the walls on either side, hoping, praying that there's a face in the grain I have yet to discover, and I remember the wood is stained so dark and glossed over so thick, there's no way a face could exist within its sheen. Free me. The voice shouts in my head, and I can't stand it any longer. I know what I have to do. Damn that voice. I position the chisel over the face. How can I do this? It will be murdering my wife, only to liberate another invader to our planet. No jury in the country will believe such a plea. But if I must travel this course darker than space, surely she shouldn't suffer. I could drive the chisel into her temple first, I think, only to realize my hands are already in position. Damn me. I choke back tears. I can't do this. Free me. The voice insists. I raise the hammer. Yes, it approves. I can't do it! I scream. Laura starts from a dead sleep. What? What's happening? She's looking around the room for an intruder, but there's only one threat present. Mark, what are you doing? Why do you have your tools? I go to explain when she lets out a blood-curdling scream. Laura? She rolls onto her stomach. Get it out! Oh, God! It's eating me alive! I see the thing rippling beneath her skin, beneath the constellation, the face of Cassiopeia, the Martian. Please, Mark, take it out! She cries. No, Laura, I can't, I shout. Free me, Cassiopeia demands. Free it! Laura agrees. I won't do... She screams again, and her agony is more than I can humanly fathom. I feel my mind fracture into a thousand pieces, the spall of my resistance falling at my feet, leaving only the obedient thing the Martians have spent months carving out of my pliable psyche. Alas, their sculpture is complete, a masterpiece if ever was one. Cassiopeia gazes at me, her expression loving, forgiving, consenting. I place the chisel at the top of her crown. The cold steel tip creases the smooth flesh of Laura's back, and I strike. Her flesh parts to reveal the green ooze I've seen so many times now, and apart from the bones and tissues that occupy Laura's earthbound body, the green and red organs that compose the Martians are given vent. I sit on the edge of my bed, the bloodied hammer and chisel locked behind the bars of my cramped, frozen fingers. I try to open my hands to release the tools, but it's just too painful. What have I done? 
I ask myself. I look over my shoulder at the spall of my wife I carved away to sculpt what I somehow know is the last Martian, like bits of wet clay or soft green wood. Streaks of red and green and hues in between cover the walls from ceiling to floor. It looks like melted crayons. But the streaks that demand my attention are those that run down the side of our bed, across the floor, and out the bedroom door. I don't have to follow the trail to know where it leads, nor do I have to worry about the police discovering my wife's body. None of this will matter in a few days. The prophets have been hard at work, making the rough ways smooth and the crooked straight. The Great Commission is complete. The Martians made us disciples that we would make them gods, and gods came to rule. Thank you for listening to episode number 1108 of The Wicked Library. Today's author was A.P. Sessler with his story, Faces of Mars. Today's story was told by Graham Rowett. Our lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Showrunner and producer for The Wicked Library is Daniel Foytek. Co-producer for The Wicked Library is Meg Williams. To find out more about today's contributors and our team, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights reserved.